0: Well, I hope when you sing that song that you can honestly say that that is the genuine testimony of your heart, your life. We know it was the genuine testimony of Paul's heart and life. In fact, um, we're going to study this morning and in our series here in the book of Philippians. A line from that song that all that I once held dear I count as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ and for the cause of Christ. And so I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. And we launched into this new chapter last week. And uh, this is um, my favorite chapter. And In this entire letter, I'm sure it's many of your favorite chapter as well. Uh, It's just chock full of of truth for us to uh, study and understand and meditate on and apply. And I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through this chapter, but uh, we'll just see how much uh, more we can cover this morning. But let's begin by reading uh, in verse 1, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm just going to be reading through verse 11, uh, to start this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. To worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. just the, the blessing that we have this morning to sit under the teaching of your word. And I pray that we would listen today and receive what's said, not as, as if it's coming from a mere man, but Lord, as it actually is, your word, and that your word would accomplish its work in those of us who believe, and Lord, for those who need to believe. And I pray if there's anyone here today who is still trusting in or counting on something that they have done or might do in the future as the way to get to heaven, as the way to be made right with you and be acceptable to you and presentable to you, that, Lord, they would repent of that today, that they would embrace Christ alone, by faith alone. And they would experience what it means to be truly saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have many fond memories of the weeks that I spent at Christian summer camp as a kid growing up back in, the, back in my home state of Massachusetts. And um, some of the songs that we sang in that little chapel on the hill or around the, the fire pit by the lake, they still linger in my mind to this day. Uh, one of the the simple lyrics that I remember from time to time uh, went something like this. I paid a debt, or excuse me, he paid a debt he did not owe because I owed a debt I could not pay. Have you ever heard that line? It's the line of a a famous old uh, gospel hymn. He paid a, a debt he did not owe because I owed a debt I could not pay. When I sang that, Profound song in my early teen years. I had no idea what it meant to file for bankruptcy, but now I know what it means, and 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 no one wants to do it if they don't if they don't have to. Um, bankruptcy is a, a legal process involving a person or business who's an, unable to pay their outstanding debts, and so a petition is filed by the debtor or on behalf of the creditors, and a settlement is agreed upon. And sadly, whenever a person or company files for for bankruptcy, it often results in financial ruin. It just wipes them out completely, they go broke, they're left destitute, and it brings them to their knees. However, for some people, filing for bankruptcy provides a way out of debt and a fresh financial start. And I think that's true of everyone who's filed for spiritual bankruptcy. The Apostle Paul went bankrupt despite his rich heritage and many religious achievements that he had earned. His, his bankruptcy occurred while he was on his way to arrest Christians in the city of Damascus. And this proud, self-righteous Pharisee was brought to his knees, literally, and he came face-to-face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he realized that he was spiritually destitute and completely broke. Even though he had spent his life amassing all sorts of things to gain God's approval and to earn acceptance into heaven, he was bankrupt. I thought it'd be good for us just to be reminded afresh of Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 9, turn back there with me just quickly, and here we have uh, Luke's record of Saul's conversion, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so Saul was the premier persecutor of the church in its early days. And here he was wanting to go arrest Christians and hauled them back to, to Jerusalem where they could be tried and convicted and, and killed. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is one of the most dramatic conversions ever recorded, and here we have Saul, the greatest persecutor of the early church, became Paul, the greatest preacher of the early church. Before he was saved, he wanted to totally eradicate the, the new Christian religion, he called it the way, which he believed was a threat to Judaism, but he found out that Christianity wasn't a religion after all, it was simply having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And through his, his own personal encounter with Christ on that day, Paul's life was suddenly and radically changed, transformed in, the, in, that, in that blazing, blinding moment, everything in his life changed. He realized for the first time in his life that he had a debt he could never pay, no matter who he was or, or what he ever did, but that Christ came to pay that debt that he didn't know by dying on the cross in his place. And and so Paul humbly acknowledged that there was nothing, absolutely nothing he could do to make himself right with God. He went from trying to work his way to heaven to trusting solely in Christ's work to get to heaven. And by faith, Paul received God's free gift of salvation through Christ, and God graciously granted this man a fresh spiritual start. He became a new man in Christ with new values and new passions and new goals and and new hopes. And from that day forward, Paul's entire life was consumed with knowing Christ and making Christ known. I'm sure for the first few years as a new believer in Christ, he he just poured over the Old Testament scriptures, which he already knew very well having been raised in, uh, under the law, having been taught by Gamaliel, the premier uh, Pharisee of the day. But for the first time, he was able to connect all the dots regarding the prophecies in the Old Testament that, aha, that was Jesus, that was Jesus, and, uh, and that was Jesus, and, and Jesus did that, I was talking about Jesus, and, and it all came together in his mind. And, and I think he probably also spent as much time as possible with, with Jesus' disciples, even they were, they were a bit leery at first, thinking that he was trying to trick them and act like he's a Christian to get into the inner circle, and, and so they kind of kept him at arm's length. But I'm sure he tried as much as possible to, to, to glean everything he could about the life and ministry of Christ from those who had walked with him for, for three years. And we know for many years after that, he traveled all over the known world proclaiming the gospel and planting churches, and, and when Paul finally wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. It was 30 years since he had met Christ on the road to Damascus. And yet, when you read this, it's as if he had just gotten saved yesterday. There was a freshness, there was this, 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 this longing to, to know Christ more intimately and to reflect Him more perfectly. And he expresses here his his, his relentless pursuit. This was, this was the relentless pursuit of Paul's life to learn everything he could possibly learn about Christ and to become as much like Christ as he possibly could become. And when it came to protecting those he had led to Christ and the churches he had planted, no one was more passionate than Paul. Paul when he heard that there were those kind of coming in behind him after he had been anywhere came to a city and shared the gospel and then people got saved and planted a church and then he left and right on 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 his heels came people insisting that there was more that they had to do to be approved by God to be accepted into heaven than just just receiving than what Paul said just receiving the gift free gift of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone and 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 uh, they were Uh, promoting legalism, which we learned last week is simply uh, the the, the thought, the teaching, the belief that there's something you can do or have to do in order to be right with God. There's laws that you need to keep. There's rules that you need to keep. And in Paul's day, there was a, a group of false teachers who believed this. They were called the Judaizers, and they actually taught that in order for a person to be saved, you had to be circumcised. You had to keep all the laws, all the all, practice all the rituals and ceremonies that were prescribed by Moses in the Old Testament. Essentially what they were saying is that, that a Christian needed to become a Jew in order to be truly saved. And as you can imagine, this legalistic mixture of law and grace caused great confusion among Paul's converts, especially when the Judaizers showed up in town and uh, tried to convince them that, oh, by the way, you know, Paul, yeah, he's a good guy. But he only told you half the story. There's more uh, to being a Christian than what Paul told you. And so at the beginning of this chapter, Paul warned the the Philippians about the Judaizers. Verses 1 through 3, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. He's protecting them, he's safeguarding them. And then he says, he comes right out, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, keep listening to me and and don't listen to them because they're they're false. And, and, And Paul, if anyone knew what he was talking about, it was Paul because he used to trust the same things that the Judaizers did to earn God's approval and to to gain entrance into heaven by by faithfully fulfilling all the demands and the duties of Judaism. Verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to be confident in the flesh, I far more. I get it. I've been there. I've done that. And then he proceeded to list all the things he had either inherited through his Jewish heritage heritage or family or or achieved through his own self-effort, which was far more than any... Jew could ever hope to attain. I mean, he had reached the pinnacle of Judaism. He was circumcised the eighth day, verse 5, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of, Hebrew, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as the zeal, persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I mean, this is, this is a very impressive religious resume here, that from a Jewish perspective would have made anyone a shoe-in for heaven. And so based on Paul's natural ancestry, his, his spiritual accomplishments, he proudly assumed that God was pleased with his life. And he was, confident that, he was confident that he had done more than enough to get to heaven. But when he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, all that changed. And he was forced... To declare bankruptcy and admit that all of his self righteous works were nothing but filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. This is a a key verse that I'm taking the moment to read because I want you to make sure you have this underlined in your Bible where you can find it again because it's a, a classic Old Testament text that we all need to understand, Isaiah 64, verse 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. In other words, no matter what you do, no matter any good things that you do, it's still not good enough. Because in God's eyes, it's it's just filthy, It's, it's dirty, it's... In your eyes, it's, it's righteous, it's clean, it's pure, it's acceptable to God. God says, no, it's not. And so as Paul experienced those three days of temporary blindness, God opened his spiritual eyes to see all these things in verses 5 and 6, that he had prided himself in and and trusted in to attain right standing before God amounted to nothing compared to the righteousness that God provides through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we transition to verses 7 through 11, we're going to see how Paul explained this, this radical reversal of values and passions and goals And 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 confidences um, that he experienced when he was born again, and I think we could divide up what Paul's saying here into two sections. Here, we first of all in verses seven and nine, seven through nine, we can see Paul's appraisal of his past, and then in verses ten and eleven, we see Paul's aspiration for his future. Let's look first of all at Paul's appraisal of his of his past. Verse 7, but, but, transition word here, connecting what he just said with what he's about to say, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Those things, he mentions twice there in verse 7, refers to everything he just got done listing in verses 5 and 6. So, right after he gets done listing everything at one time that he'd counted on to earn him God's favor, he completely renounced them all as having no value whatsoever when when it comes to earning or attaining salvation. And and Paul was using accounting terminology here. It's as if he was presenting to us his own profit loss statement. Here it is one side, all my profits, On, on, on the other side, all my losses. And so on the, on the lost side, he listed all the things that he had inherited and, and achieved, and, and on the prophet's side, there was only one word. What was it? Christ. So he got all this stuff list, line after line after line after line after line, verses five and six, all these things that, that, um, that at one time in his life thought, he thought, those were my assets." And he realized that they were actually his liabilities. Because as long as he trusted in those things, he, he could never have been saved. But once he got saved, they didn't matter to him anymore. And so he, it was a reversal. It's like, hey, all those things that I used to put in the, the gains category, my profit category, they, I, I just, just, just copied and pasted them over into right, my loss category, and I just went back and, and wrote Christ in my gains, in my profit line, item. And so all the things he had, he had worked so hard for meant nothing to him when weighed against the treasure that he had received in Christ. And when Paul was, was struck by the glory of Christ, it, it, it literally knocked him to the ground and blinded him. But even more importantly, it, it reorientated his an entire outlook on what mattered most in life. And so he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So again, Paul is emphasizing here how whatever he considered value, valuable to him before he saw as worthless, absolutely worthless compared to Christ, to, to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I emphasize that because Jesus wasn't just Jesus to Paul, he was my Jesus. We just sang that, right? Right? It's not just Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's no, my Jesus. In other words, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. This is the only time in Paul's writings that he refers to Christ as his Lord. My, uses the word my Lord. And again, he was, he, was, he was just emphasizing the incomparable worth of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ which is way better than any religion that you might have experienced in your life. I mean, if there was anyone who had a ride on, who was riding on religion, it was Paul. And and compared to Christ, having a relationship with Christ versus having a religion, man, this, this is so much better I appreciated our daughter last week expressing how blessed she was by the message as we were talking about you know, all the things that people trust in for their salvation and that, that the majority of people in this world who are trying to work their way to heaven, they're just under all this intense pressure. I mean, it's, it's, it just, their religion becomes a ball and chain. It just, it's oppressive and, and yet Christianity is like, are you kidding me? This is awesome. And it's a joy and it's a blessing. And there's this huge relief that I don't have to to do anything to earn right standing before God. God did it all for me through Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we can just, what, go on sinning so that grace may abound, right? Paul said, no way. That We recognize that, that those you know, who, who come to Christ, they, they recognize that they should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again. And so it's not like you just get a get-out-of-jail-free card and you can just live however you want and you know, you got your fire insurance and you're going to heaven. And no, that's not it. It's just this, this huge relief that, that, that Christ has done it all. And I, and I have the privilege of receiving that righteousness that he earned um, through his death by faith. And what a, what a blessing to just rest in that and not have to be under this oppressive, all these rules and regulations and things I have to do. And so a personal relationship with Christ is way better than a religion. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. When Paul came to Christ, he, he severed his ties to Judaism. He was likely dis- disinherited from his relatives. He was disowned by his former friends. He was persecuted by his, his fellow countrymen. He, he literally lost everything that he had ever inherited and worked for his entire life. He lost it all. But it didn't matter to Paul because... He gained Christ. He gained Christ. In other words, he came out way better at the end of that transaction. Notice he says here, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish by first century standards, was a crude explicative. I'm sure it, the guy that might have been dozing off to sleep in the church in Philippi, right, when this letter was being read, and all of a sudden he hears the word skubalon, he's like, whoa, did Paul just say, did, he, did, he, did I just hear that? Did Paul say that out loud, a skubalon? That's the Greek word, skubalon, which literally means human excrement. Feces, dung, poop. Just trying to make it, you know, practical here. That's what he was talking about here. That Paul considered his his ancestry and and his nationality and his education and his religious efforts and all of his attainments as nothing but a big old nasty pile of poop. Fit only to be scooped up and, and thrown into the trash or flushed down the toilet. And the Judaizers were coming into churches with their manure spreaders, flinging these putrid lies around that people needed to be circumcised and, and observe all the Old Testament ceremonial laws given to the Jews in order for God to approve them and accept them into heaven. You ever seen a manure spreader, by the way? It's pretty amazing how it works. In fact, we were back in Maine one time when the kids were younger and they would never seen a manure spreader. I grew up, Every Saturday, the farmer next door had the manure spreader. And it was usually right about the time we were grilling out. And he decided he was going to spread some manure on his field and was like, oh, great, here we go again. Um, but they'd never seen a manure spreader. And so we were driving down the road. And I saw a manure spreader. And, and, and I had, apparently, they had upgraded these things since I was a kid because this, this thing was flinging stuff really far and high. I had never seen anything like it. I was like, "Whoa, kids, shut you up!" Know? I pulled over and I t- got my camera. And I videotaped this thing. Look at it. And the name of it was a Pro Twin Swing Slinger. I think it was called the Pro Twin Slinger. And it was like flying everywhere. I was like, "Kids, check that out!" And uh, they were like, "Dad, you're weird." What? Some manure spreader. I said, like, "Guys, that's amazing. Invented. Look at that thing." But this is literally. I mean, here comes the here comes the, the Judaizers with their manure spreader. They're sp- they're they're spreading all this manure all over the church of Philippi. And so in order to counteract this this heretical rubbish, Paul shared his own testimony about how he had renounced any confidence in anything that he had done or could do to earn salvation. Hey, I've been there. I, I tried that. I was doing that same thing. But guess what? I came to Christ and I realized it was all rubbish. It was all poop. And He gladly and willingly surrendered everything in his entire life in order to gain Christ. I count them but rubbish so that I may, may, I get Christ. I got Christ out of this deal. And so, in Paul's mind, this was the deal of a lifetime. Because Christ was far, worth far more than anything he'd given up for him. It reminds me of the the parables that Jesus shared in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. The back-to-back parables, the hidden treasure and the, the pearl of great price. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. In other words, coming to Christ, being saved by the Lord Jesus, is the best bargain in the world. I mean, you'd be a fool not to to do it. And, and, and th- these examples that, that Jesus gave are, are just people who recognized how valuable Christ is. And as a result, they joyfully, I love it, with joy, they joyfully surrendered everything to gain Christ. And I think the point of those parables is, is the same as is, is what Paul is illustrating for us. He's a good example of this, that, that when you realize the value of knowing Christ that you're willing to surrender everything and, and sacrifice anything. But in reality, you're really not giving up anything. You're gaining everything. I'm sure the merchant there, that pearl trader, was, was grinning from ear to ear when he, when he made this truly unbelievable exchange. He was probably looking around for the security cameras going, am I seriously? I'm, I feel like I'm ripping this guy off here. This is amazing, unbelievable. And really, those parables and this Paul's testimony here in Philippians 3 really is the essence of Christianity, which is this. This is the the, 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 um, the essence of Christianity. It boils down to this. Christianity is exchanging all that we are and all that we've done for all that Christ did and all that he has done. That's Christianity, exchanging all that we are and all that we've done for everything that Christ is, for all that Christ is, and all that he's done. Jim Elliott, the well-known martyred missionary, is probably best known for one quote from his diary that goes like this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That was Paul's testimony here. I counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ for whom I suffered the loss of all things. I gave it all up to gain Christ. And, or so that I could be found in him, that I could be found in Christ. That when God came looking for me, if you will, or if I stood before God someday, when I stood before that I would be found in Christ. I wouldn't be found by myself, standing there with my filthy rags, but I would be found robed in the righteousness of Christ. Notice And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. But Paul abandoned his own self-righteous efforts to earn salvation by, by keeping the regulations that God had given to the nation of Israel, and he placed his faith alone in the work that Christ had accomplished to secure the salvation of those who, who would repent and believe. And up until this point, Paul um, had misunderstood the purpose of the law, or I should say up until the point he came to Christ, he, he misunderstood the purpose of the law, he, he had always viewed the law as something that God expected him to keep in order to be considered righteous before him. But once he came to know Christ, he realized that God had intended the law for the exact opposite purpose. To to prove that no one is righteous in and of themselves, that you can't keep the law and you need a savior. That was the purpose of the law. And so for years he had been striving to earn his own righteousness by meticulously keeping the law. But then he discovered the glorious truth that no matter how hard you try, you will never be good enough. You'll never be righteous enough for God to let you into heaven. And that's why he sent Jesus. To live the life that we all failed to live and to die the death that we all deserve to die. To live the life that we all fail to live, and to die the death that we all deserve to die. And so the choice that each of us needs to make is, are we going to keep trying in vain to earn our own righteousness by doing good things and being a good person, or will we simply embrace the righteousness that God offers us as a gift for the taking through faith in Christ? He says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law or keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Christ lived a perfect life when he was on, he was here on earth. He's the only person that ever kept the law perfectly. And yet, at the same time, he was the only one who died that didn't deserve to die. He, he, he died to pay the penalty for, for all of us who failed to keep the law Perfectly. And so by living and dying in our place, it's not just about the death of Christ, it's also about the life of Christ. By living and dying in our place, Christ earned, achieved, accomplished the righteousness that God requires. And that righteousness is attributed or given to everyone who believes that they can only be saved Because of the work that Christ has done for them rather than the work that they've done for Him. The old uh, Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, said it very succinctly. He said this The gospel consists precisely in this that we do nothing to earn our salvation or to secure it for ourselves, God in Christ does it all. And that's what Paul said here at the, at the end of verse 9. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from who? Me? No. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, everyone who places their faith alone in Christ's work alone, are given the gift of righteousness from God. This is the only kind of righteousness that God accepts. It's it's the kind that is produced by Him and granted by Him. We know that there's, you know, manufacturers have certain requirements for their products, right? They call it a manufacturer-imposed requirement. Well, guess what? God is the manufacturer of righteousness, true righteousness, through his son, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you show up with some knockoff righteousness, which is your own, or anything else you're trusting in, he's like, sorry, we don't, we don't accept that here. We don't take American Express. We just take right whatever. He's like, we don't accept that knockoff version of righteousness. We only accept the authentic righteousness that was been manufactured by God, that was, that was, was um, manufactured here in heaven. How's that? You can try to find some knockoff here on earth, some righteousness that you can, No, there's only, one kind of, there's only one kind of righteousness that will get you to heaven, and that's the kind that's been manufactured in heaven, and that's through God and the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's a gift. It's a gift that cannot be earned, it has to be accepted. You can't earn a gift. Somebody says, hey, happy birthday. Here's your... Oh, here, let me pay you for that. Or hey, let me run around the lap. Let me do a few push-ups. What? What are you talking about? It's a gift. It's your birthday. It's a gift. You just take it and say thank you. You can't earn it. You just accept it. And so the way to accept or receive the righteousness of Christ, as we mentioned last week, is to crumple up your religious resume that you've been trusting in to make you right with God that you were gonna kind of pull out of your pocket when you got there and went, look what I did, look what I accomplished. No, crumple that sucker up, throw it away and humbly confess to God that you lack the righteousness that he requires of you to get into heaven and you ask him to credit Christ's righteousness to your account solely based on your trust and your confidence in what he did on your behalf. In other words God you have what I don't. I need what you have. And so would you please graciously grant me righteousness? Look at 2 Corinthians 5:21. 2 Corinthians 5:21. This is a profound little verse here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. That describes just in in just uh, an economy of words here, what we're talking about, which is the doctrine of imputation. That woke you up or said, oh, this is a good time for a nap. He's talking about a big theological word. I can't even pronounce or write down whatever. What is it? Imputate. Doctrine of imputation. What is that? It's very simple. Okay? Imputation means something that's transferred to or credited to another person's account. That's the imputation. Something transferred or credited to another person's account. So notice 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, God, God, this is God's doing here. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, all of our sinful unrighteousness was imputed or credited or transferred to his account. God treated him as if he had lived our sinful life and punished him accordingly, poured out his wrath on him accordingly. On the other hand, when we place our faith in Christ's substitutionary death, his perfect righteousness is imputed credited, transferred to our account. And so God treats us like we lived his sinless life. God looks at Jesus and sees us. He looks at us and sees Jesus. That's the doctrine of imputation. We find a a, a vivid illustration of imputation of all places in the Old Testament, back in Zechariah, one of the minor prophets here. Turn back there just quickly, Zechariah chapter 3, and here we find the story of, of Joshua, the high priest, and, and just, just look at the first few verses here with me, Zechariah chapter 3, Just kind of go to Matthew and go back a few pages if you're still trying to figure out where where in the world is Zechariah. Just go to Matthew and go back a few pages, you'll find it. Verse three, or chapter three, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And so here's Joshua, the high priest, of Israel standing before God and being accused by Satan as being unworthy. And we're going to see why in just a second. But we know that, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He he accuses them before God day and night. In other words, he's constantly accusing us before the Lord. Oh, yeah, they're one of yours? Well, then why did they just do that? Seriously, you're going to forgive that, God? Come on. He's constantly accusing and bringing up our sin, kind of rubbing uh, our sin in our nose and and, and then kind of putting it in front of God and saying, seriously, what are you going to do about this, right? And so the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, which I think the Lord does the same thing for, for us when we have the righteousness of Christ The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, I know. I know he's not all he should be, but guess what? I plucked him from the fire like a stick, rescuing a stick, grabbing it out of the fire. Notice this is the issue, verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. So the reason why he was just standing there kind of silent, kind of with a little stoopy face, feeling like, a, what am I doing here? I'm, out of, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely out of place, underdressed. He was dressed in these filthy garments. He was a priest. He was supposed to be purified and clean. And, and so he was there with no self-defense before this accuser, Satan. And again, I think this represents... How we appear as sinful before God and and all the filthy rags of our own unrighteousness and and God rebuked Satan and and rescued Joshua like a piece of wood plucked out of a, a fire. And notice he provided Joshua with clean garments which made him acceptable to stand in his presence. Verse four, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, "Remove the filthy garments from him." Again, he said to him, "See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes." Again, this is a, I think, a profound picture of how God removes our sin and robes us in the righteousness of Christ, which which makes us presentable before Him. This is all God's doing. It's nothing that you can do. It's it's what God does for us by His grace. R.C. Sproul, who um, has been a blessing to our generation um, in the way he's able to take profound theological concepts and make them really simple. And um, even to the point of putting some of the the great truths of the Bible into children's storybooks. And I know some of you have those and you read them with your kids and, and um, shoot, man, you should just get them for you and read them as an adult. They're that good. In fact, I'll admit, I was reading a storybook last night, a children's storybook <laughs> written by R.C. Sproul. Actually, I was listening to it as he read it online. It was just fascinating to listen to him actually read and in just his um, inimitable way of communicating, R.C. Sproul and and uh, but but it's the story. He he wrote a book called "The Priest with Dirty Clothes." The priest with dirty clothes, and it and it's based on Zechariah chapter three, verses one through five, the passage that we just looked at. And it's a story that he wrote to help kids understand the doctrine of imputation, how we're made acceptable to God through Christ's righteousness and. I wish, honestly, I actually thought about reading the story to you this morning and said, okay, we're going to have story time this morning, because it's that good. It would be worth the 20 minutes that it would take for me to read the story to you. But let me just give you the summary. Two children decide to make mud pies in their front yard, and they end up ruining their clothes. Their mom's not very happy about that, and then grandpa comes over For a visit, and he sees their muddy clothes, and he remembers an amazing story. He sits them down on the couch, and he tells them a story about a young priest who, on his way to preach his sermon to the royal family, falls from his horse and gets his clothes all muddy. And he arrives at the castle. He's met by Malice, the wicked court magician, (laughs) Satan, Right? Who mocks him and accuses him and tells him he's not worthy to go before the king dressed in those dirty clothes and so he's sent away but is told he must return in a week's time with clean clothes and unfortunately nothing he 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 can he does gets the mud out of his clothes they're they're absolutely ruined and so he's 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 he's, he's nothing he can do and so out of desperation the young priest goes to see the great prince the king's son to see if there's anything he could do to help him. And so the kind prince exchanges clothes with the priest. And he takes off his royal robe and he gives it to him and he takes his dirty clothes and he puts those on and, and, and he sends him away so he could go before his father, the king. This is a great story. If you haven't read it, if you haven't got it for your kids, I would encourage you to buy it. The priest with dirty clothes, R.C. Sproul. And... I think, again, the, the picture is obvious that Jesus, God's Son, offers to exchange clothes with us so that we can stand before God robed in Christ's righteousness. This is back in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 9 is, is really one of the premier Pauline passages in which he made it crystal clear that salvation cannot be earned by our works it can only be received by grace through faith in the person and work of Christ i mean this is a fundamental doctrine of the christian faith and why because it's it's the unmistakable teaching of scripture let me just read for you just uh, just a few verses that you'll probably recognize that are right up there with philippians chapter 3 verse 9 galatians 2:16 A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, even we who have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And then he said this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. What Paul's saying is, seriously, you're going to try to earn your own righteousness, and, and, and by keeping the law, then what you're saying, then, ultimately, is Christ died for nothing. What's the point of Christ's death? If you could do it yourself. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. And then Titus chapter three, verse five, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I wish I had time because we haven't even got to the book of Romans. And that's where Paul just went off on this whole idea That salvation is by grace through faith, not by works of righteousness. And ultimately, Paul's, even though he was the the apostle to the Gentiles, in other words, God saved him on that road to Damascus and said, Now I want you to go and, and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Forget about the Jews. You go after the Gentiles. We'll let other people deal with you. You go after the Gentiles. And yet the whole time when he was focused on the Gentiles, his heart was burdened for his fellow countrymen. And it's interesting in, in Romans chapter, chapter um, 10, he, he says this in verse, in verse 3 about his fellow Jews that had not yet come to Christ. He says, for not knowing about God's righteousness. They, they don't know about God's righteousness. They don't know about this. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, it's all about their righteousness instead of saying, no, I need to learn about God's righteousness that he's provided us in Christ. And then he goes on. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart of man, a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. So how do you receive that salvation? It's, it's confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead because when you do that, when you believe, even as Paul said in Romans, Paul or, or God accounts that faith as righteousness. How about you? Are you sitting here this morning with your filthy robes of your own righteousness or are you sitting here this morning knowing the the embrace of of, of the robe of Christ's righteousness that you're you're trusting not in, in, in what you have done or might do in the future you're trusting only in what Christ has done for you that's what it means to be saved that's what it means to be a Christian let's pray Father, thank you for this passage that's so clear to us. It just really brings it right down to where the rubber meets the road as to how we are saved. And I pray that there would be no one here like the Jews who refused to forsake their work-based righteousness, to receive faith-based righteousness that's granted by you. Lord, I pray that they would understand, Lord, that their rancid rags will get them nowhere with you, and so that they would confess their sin and their unrighteousness, and that they would reach out and receive by faith the righteous robe of Christ that you offer to all of us who will repent and believe. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.